In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody's enjoying their Sunday. It's either the first day of the week or the last day of the week. I'm not sure. Whatever you want it to be, but I hope it's beautiful for you. I hope the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and the wind is at your back. I got an incredible show with an incredible guest who's doing some incredible research. I want to introduce to everybody the PhD candidate, Alexandra Wingert. Alexandra is a dedicated, enthusiastic neuroscientist, demonstrating a profound passion for the fascinating realm of psychedelic research, neuroplasticity, and human sexuality. Graduating with distinction from King's College London, where she earned her Master's of Science degree in clinical neuroscience, Alexandra currently stands at the forefront of groundbreaking research as a research assistant and clinical coordinator at the renowned Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College London. Alexandra's academic journey has been marked by a relentless pursuit of knowledge and a commitment to expanding the boundaries of our understanding of the human mind. With a robust foundation in clinical neuroscience, she has seamlessly transitioned into the dynamic world of psychedelic research. Over the past five years, she has honed her skills in both clinical and laboratory research, cementing her status as a promising emerging scholar in the field. At the heart of her research portfolio lies the Microdosing 2.0 Project, a pioneering venture that has captured the imagination of both the scientific community and the general public. Her dedication to pushing boundaries of knowledge and her innovative approach to research have culminated in the publication of multiple influential articles in high-impact scientific journals. Recognizing her exceptional contributions, Alexander received the prestigious BAP Summer Project Award for her outstanding work at the Center for Psychedelic Research. Her thirst for knowledge knows no bounds, and she seizes every opportunity for growth, embodying the spirit of lifelong learning and personal development. Thank you so much for being here today. How's it going? Thank you so much. Wow, that was <laughs> that was such a wonderful introduction. <laughs> uh, so many positive things. Thank you so much for putting this together. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a privilege being here and having an opportunity to talk about my research interests with you. And um, 
as you know, I was a little bit hesitant at first to join the podcast um, because um, being in such an exciting place in the field at the Center for Psychedelic Research and working with such a brilliant, brilliant, interesting minds, although it's super exciting, it also might make you feel a bit self-conscious. And I, I know that I still don't find myself an expert in the field. And, you know, as I'm trying to grow and learn more every day, it's definitely an exciting opportunity for me to grow as a scientist. But um, yeah, it's definitely exciting times to be in the field and talking to you right now. And I'll try to just show you my perspective of how I see psychedelic research and the research I've done so far. Um, but um, by no means, I want to say that perhaps I'm not still an expert in the field. So, well, Thank you for that. It's it's interesting to think about the idea of who we are, where we're at, and what we're accomplishing. It seems to me that so many people, regardless of what field you're in, whether you're a mechanic or a researcher or a truck driver or a swimmer, wherever you are in your life, you're listening to this, you often do some of the greatest work while you're at this stage. A lot of the times you'll hear people in the military talk about being in the trenches. And it seems to me that that is where the war is either won or lost, is in the trenches. And I, th I think that people that get up and, and are in this state of not knowing, am I an expert? Am I a novice? Look, you're in the trenches and we're all here together and we're all here fighting. So I'm glad that, that you are, find yourself in this position. You know, I, I'm sure that, and I'm hopeful that everybody accomplishes what it is they want to accomplish, but being in the trenches is a badge of honor. And it's something that helps propel the people behind us into the world of expertise. When they see us fight, when they see us begin to gain knowledge, we are showing them the way forward. So I think it's a beautiful place to be, and I'm excited that you're there. So, so thanks for that. Maybe we should jump into what are you doing in the trenches these days? What, what is this Microdose 2.0 project? Do you want to give us a background? You want, well, however you want to start, go ahead. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much. Um, so um, thank you for the brilliant introduction. As you mentioned, I am a PhD candidate at the Center for Psychedelic Research, and my main focus for the PhD is actively coordinating the microdosing 2.0 study. Um, some of the people in the audience might already be familiar with the first microdosing study that has been done at Imperial College London, which is a citizen science um, double blind microdose study, and it was fully online. Um, so we have a few differences and there are a few reasons why we decided to do part 2.0. Um, so let me maybe start explaining the study design and why we designed the study in this particular way. And then I'll give a little bit of kind of differences what we did in the past and what we're gonna do now. So um, as I mentioned, it's a double blind citizen science study where we're looking for people who are planning to microdose with their own substance their own initiative um, to help um, with their mood problems um, and perhaps depression. It might be subclinical levels of depression. They can also 
have a diagnosis, it's not an exclusion. However, um, we do exclude people that are currently on antidepressants or any mental health medication because, you know, there still might be an issue of the interaction effect. Um, we still don't know if it's entirely safe to use um, psychedelics as well as SSRIs. Um, so there is a long debate. So to make it as safe as possible, um, we have to have a bit of a stringent inclusion criteria as it is with the majority of psychedelic trials. So um, the tricky part is that um, we kind of have to rely on people to be kind of honest with us and willing to participate in this research um, just to contribute to the development of the field. Um, and you know kind of follow the procedures we have in a study um we have a quite interesting self-blinding procedure mm -hmm. where we um when we allocate people to a certain placebo or microdose condition in a double blind manner so both us nor the people they don't know whether they take the microdose or placebo and we kind of support them on how to allocate those um those capsules using little qr codes um and it's an interesting concept and it's definitely a lot to explain so i'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it um and so we are planning to recruit um 60 people at least 60 people to participate in the study which is quite a large number <laughs> so i hope um i'll manage to achieve that in the next two years and we'll be looking into some psychological um, outcomes like uh, for example depression anxiety as well as uh, physiological outcomes such as um, heart variability or changes in um, sexuality perhaps we also look into um, sleep um, uh, we'll be giving people aura rings during um, while they participate in the study to look into um, the heart rate variability, which is quite interesting to measure because um, most um, most studies so far only um, only focus on the psychological side um, of you know mental health outcomes. But myself, I'm quite curious about um, how the physiological side will also perhaps change. And um, as we've been seeing a lot of uh, placebo effect um, in, you know, different various microdosing trials. Um, I would be quite curious to see whether um, if people do improve potentially in the placebo group, would that psychological improvement also be similar to the physiological improvement? And if yes, then, you know, what does it mean? And perhaps this study may not be able to give us any conclusive evidence. We still don't know. At least it will give us some sort of more indication of what's going on on both psychological and physiological level. So basically the difference between the first study and this one is that um, the original microdosing study was only fully online so people only did um, psychological um, surveys and some cognitive testing while we also have a laboratory measure um, in the lab branch of the study so we'll be looking into uh, various markers of neuroplasticity using electroencephalography um, we'll be looking into um, BDNF levels in the blood and also some epigenetic uh, markers of um, immune response. Um, so I think it's a very exciting study. Um, 
And something also important to mention is that the reason why we design, designed the study to be kind of citizen science and do it at home design, it's because um, we see with those very well controlled clinical trials that um, people are not necessarily finding a lot of effects with microdosing so far. Um, like for example, people in anecdotal studies report a lot of benefits. Um, however, those studies are typically not placebo controlled and rely purely on the um, self-report measure where people have a lot of expectancies. And as you go up into, into scientific rigorous hierarchy, the less kind of positive outcomes you find. And we're gonna show that um, in the literature review that will hopefully be um, be submitting quite soon. We're still working on it. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite an exciting project. So um, we postulated that perhaps microdosing, it's something that kind of emerged originally on the streets, you know, and perhaps that comfort of doing it at home, but also with a proper placebo measure in place could give us a bit more understanding into the whole microdosing paradigm, but also because we're gonna include a sample that already has some um, mood affective disorders, um, hopefully it will give us more indication whether microdosing has any therapeutic potential or not, because so far, um, most clinical studies that have been done included populations that are extremely healthy. So we might be seeing so-called ceiling effect of well-being. Mm -hmm. So it would just be interesting to see whether this will be similar with people that already have some levels of, you know, mental health problems and perhaps have a little bit more room to improve um, as they would, as they would with antidepressants, you know, so... Yeah, yeah. It, it is fascinating on so many levels. And I'm, it seems to me like there's a, there's a lot of things happening with this study. One thing is this introduction of citizen science. I think that not only is the idea of microdosing pioneering in a way, but so too is this idea of citizen science. Like in some ways, it seems to me that this study and other studies like it are beginning to try to get their hand around other variables, like the citizens out here. Like, how do you measure this other group that's not controlled? Like, I think it speaks volumes of our ingenuity and our curiosity and our ability to thoroughly understand when we start going out and finding tools to measure that. Like, that's a step up for science. Let's include these people. Let's take it out of the room and put it into the real world. And I realize there's liability for that, but it, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the, the citizen science aspect of it. Like, how did that come to be? Were you sitting around on a table with people being like, I think we should move this over here? Or is there anything you can speak to? I know you're limited in some things, however, but maybe you can speak to the idea of, of citizen science. Yeah, of course. I think it's a very interesting concept and quite important for you to mention that. Um, and I have to emphasize that um, the citizen science concept that will hopefully work in this study might not um, exactly be applied to using large doses of um, psychedelics <laughs> just because of the safety and the preparation to the experience. Like, for example, 
obviously we wanted to focus on on the safety of psychedelic therapies using them in individuals and uh, the elephant in the room is still using it with uh, people with various mental health problems and uh, by introducing the citizen science design it's great because we definitely limit the cost of, of the clinical trial and we can include a larger population. However, we still have quite stringent inclusion criteria for the trial. So um, we do have a psychiatrist working um, alongside that will make sure that the people we recruit are, um, you know, are, it's safe for them to participate in those trials, if that makes sense. So although I think the concept would work for microdosing per se because it's something that kind of emerged from the street. I'm not sure if I would definitely agree that it's something that should definitely be used with trials that use perceptual doses of psychedelics because it's super important to have a good preparation, it's super important to have perhaps therapeutic support there, it's super important to know how to integrate this experience and I think without previous preparation if people that are psychedelic naive that mm. might be quite a scary experience so yeah it's tricky it's very tricky it's but such is the nature of science you know and, and as you were talking about this i i started thinking how could you possibly come up with a placebo for a medium dose psychedelic like there's just like you know there's no way to not know. I heard people using niacin for maybe a smaller dose where you would get this flush or something like that. But even that, if, if one is familiar with both substances, I think it's clearly easy to distinguish between them. But is, is that a subject that came up when, when microdosing? How, how do you come up with a presentable placebo for that? <laughs> That's a really good question. And um, I'm not sure how much I can reveal yeah. about this study. Sure, sure, sure. So, uh, we had a long discussion about how do we do the placebo measure. And it's definitely something that is a big issue in psychedelic trials. And even last time, um, we submitted a paper with my supervisor to one of the journals. We got a little bit of critique. It was a paper about a using of ceremonial ayahuasca um, mm -hmm. and it was a data analysis. And um, one of the reviewers um, mentioned that, you know, it's critical that it's really difficult to have a proper placebo measure in, in psychedelics. And of course, yeah. it's such a big challenge. Um, but how exactly how exactly that will be executed in the future um i'm not sure perhaps when psychedelics are when they are kind of like you know approved treatments hopefully um we won't need that placebo measure anymore regarding the microdosing study yes it's also tricky because in theory microdosing should be subperceptual whether it's mm. actually subperceptual for most people it's really hard for me to say about it because everyone has a different experience with microdosing everyone has certain expectancies you know about participating on the trial some people believe it some people think it's a placebo effect there is a lot of you know discussion in the topic um and Originally, um, in the first microdosing study, um, Bala Shigeti, who uh, kind of designed the study, uh, used um, for people that use magic mushrooms, um, the, the placebo um, that he suggested using was chaga mushroom powder. Uh -huh. uh, 
originally we we're supposed to also use the chaga mushroom powder in a design of our study um, however because we will be looking into some um, biological markers um, like the bdnf levels we're quite cautious about the choice of um, choice of the placebo um, because there is some limited evidence suggesting that perhaps using those other, you know, adaptogens mm. um, like lion's mane, chaga mushroom powder might might be enough to kind of boost your um, genetic uh, and immune system response to a level that might be a confounder in the study. So we really tried to focus um, and did a bit of research of what substance can we use for to make sure that the tablets, um, that the capsules for placebo and microdose group look and weigh exactly the same um, for both conditions. So people cannot distinguish between them, but also we have to use something that will not potentially cause any confounder changes. So. Um, in the end, we decided to go with a vanilla rice protein powder. And for people that are using um, LSD, um, they're just going to use a plain bloater paper as a placebo measure just to make sure that the tablets weigh and look exactly the same. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a tricky concept. And I think for the purpose of scientific, scientific research and this study, we wouldn't really be able to use any active placebo because it's such a confounding factor. And if people in the placebo condition improve, then it would be really hard to think, yeah. to say what is attributable to this improvement, especially on a molecular level. Wow. It's, it's fascinating. It's an interesting question to, 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 to take in. And I'm often, as a non-scientist, it's mind-blowing to me to get to read the research of the mechanism of action and the way, how deep it goes and what we learn and what we don't learn and stuff. But also as a non-scientist, I begin to wonder, why do we got to know the mechanism of action? Like if it works, like why, why do we got to know if it really connects to that TRKB receptor, you know, or like what, what, what is the, the, what is the greatness that we get from really understanding the mechanism of action, do you think? Hmm. It's definitely a very, very interesting question. Hmm. I do think it's important to understand sure. the mechanism of action because, um, you know, everyone is different. And can you really say that one substance works the same for all? I wouldn't be so sure, even though, you know, um, antidepressants have been used uh, for people with, with, you know, for example, SSRIs has been used in people with depression for millennia. Like some people are still treatment resistant. They still don't react the same to um, those antidepressants, you know. Um, so I think it's very important to understand the mechanism of actions because um, perhaps we can focus on optimizing um, yeah, what we that. have. And also there is a matter of side effects. It's really hard to, like, the way our brain is wired is so complex and there are so many interactions and often interactions lead to side effects. So I think the ultimate goal of, um, of you know, mental health and any type of drug research is to um, come out with something that is the most effective as possible and also causes the least side effects as possible right. so in order to do it we constantly you know evolve we adapt even throughout life 
lifestyle, a lifetime, our body changes. Um, we have some hormonal changes, and um, it's really difficult to find one substance that works for all. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's why it's important to be a bit more creative with how we look at drugs and targets yeah. and receptors. So, yeah. It is. It's it's wonderful to, to contemplate and think about. And it must be it must be rewarding and, and, and interesting to be on the forefront of change. Like in a previous conversation, you and I had spoke about it's very competitive, but it's also very rewarding to be at the forefront of change and studying this. Like what how do you navigate this current world of psychedelics that we're in? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely exciting to be in the forefront of the change. And, um, you know, the field is, is now opening so much. Uh, it's constantly evolving. And we have some groundbreaking research going on, large studies investigating yeah. the potential of psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. We had some exciting results from, you know, the MDMA trials, which are definitely, definitely such a big revolution. But there are also challenges coming with it. Um, and it's quite difficult to navigate, especially for um, right. scientists that are trying to, you know, pursue it and learn to navigate the field. Like, um, first of all, academia, it's extremely competitive and uh, psychedelic research is no exception. So uh, funding sometimes can be limited. So right. even if you have this wonderful idea of, you know, investigating a concept, you might not have, you know, in practice enough money to do it. And even if you do find enough money, there are some ethical consideration of how you look into that question, you know, if it's if it's safe to look into it and the methods you use and um and also the whole um regulational reg you know, regulatory side is also quite tricky. It's not easy to get, you know, approval for a clinical study. It's extremely challenging. And um, I think it's a good thing because we really need to focus on, you know, ethical standards and making sure that it's safe for us, as safe as, safe as possible for us to, you know, use a certain substance uh, and investigate a specific research question but at the same time it's quite challenging because we have those um, financial regulatory constraints and yeah also the time constraints it's like people say that the field is kind of sometimes published or perish so like sometimes academics are really pressured to you know just publish a lot of research and sometimes it's hard you know to find enough kind of evidence that could be good for publication and then you have to find a journal that will accept your publication so it's definitely challenging but I think as long as you have your goals in mind and you want to do your research with you know a good ethical standard um, then it's definitely worth it because it's very rewarding to to do this job and it's definitely very rewarding to see people improve so yeah, that's the overview, I guess, from my yeah. It's it's wonderful to me, and I, I see, I see science changing, from the idea that we spoke about earlier about citizen science, mm -hmm. 
and maybe the move from journals to podcasts. I'm not saying one replaces the other, but it's definitely a new growing platform where you can come on and speak to the current study you're doing without having, in a way it's publishing, like you're getting your information out there, but it's, it's, it's restrictive of some of the regulations. Like there's things you can't talk about, obviously, but you can get your knowledge out there and have people reach out to you with more information. So in some ways you're reaching an audience. Another thing I see evolving too, and I'm curious to get maybe some thoughts on this, if there's any studies or, or just thoughts, but you know, it seems in the psychedelic community, there's been this sort of wedge between people who administer help. Have you done psychedelics or have you not psychedelics? And it, it's, it's the same problem with language. It's, it's an either or. But what I see evolving is a both and, like the coming together of both people to sit down and apply the integration. And like that to me, it kind of gives me goosebumps because the same way we can look at the liar's paradox and say, oh, both things are true. So too might be the world of science and combining the person with the experience and without experience. Like, yes, and both and both are true. Let's bring them together. And I think that that's going to give us a more holistic approach in that. What, what do you think on those thoughts? Is that too far out there or is this something that you kind of see emerging? Yeah, I definitely feel, feel like it's a bit of a controversial discussion and I don't know myself where I feel right. about it and, and right. definitely I'm not an expert, but right. from my own perspective and how I myself approach psychedelic trials, I feel like there is a little bit of boundaries that it's definitely needed to be right. put out there That's and right. personally, I think I find it hard to talk about my personal you know, yes. psychedelics. Yes. I do understand that it's quite important um, to talk about it, and um, especially when you're a therapist. I'm I'm not a therapist. I'm a scientist, but I can see that um, it's a quite a hot topic right now uh, among you know psychedelic therapists. Whether it's a good or bad thing to to for therapists to have previous experience with psychedelics, and I think it's definitely a valid point to discuss. Um, I'm not sure where I personally am um, on that on that subject, um, but I would be curious to see where the field goes and what would be the conclusion of this discussion. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for the future. I think that there's a lot of cool things happening in, in the world of psychedelics. And you know, sometimes in psychedelics, we think about LSD or mushrooms, but ayahuasca seems to be something that is been at the forefront of change for quite some time, both in different cultures and, and different things like that. And you have done an incredible study with ayahuasca. Maybe you could talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, it's going to be a little bit of a transition now because I feel like ayahuasca, it's something not, you know, it's it's something that has been published quite well so far, but it's, it's used in slightly different contexts outside of the Western medicine, maybe. Um, and so I've always been kind of interested in that, you know, indigenous cultures and the yeah. use of ayahuasca. And when I first joined Imperial, um, I have met my supervisor and it happened to be someone um, that is actually ayahuasca researcher himself. So I was extremely, you know, excited about finding the right person to do the research with. And it was such a crazy coincidence. Um, so he's a wonderful person. His name is Brandon Wise. And um, it's been such a pleasure working with him. I've learned so much so far. But um, to tell you a little bit more about the study with it, so um, 
I personally only did the data analysis side because the data has already been collected by um, by Brandon uh, and his supervisors previously in the past, but there's still a little bit of data to analyze. And I thought it would be a good idea to look into um, traumatic re-experiencing. Brandon also happens to be kind of an expert in um, PTSD and trauma. So it was definitely a good concept to explore. So uh, we had this sample of um, 300, 306, um, just people who are non-veterans that went into South America to participate in ayahuasca ceremonies, but also 33 Special Operation Forces veterans that have um, quite high trauma profile, and many of them also have uh, PTSD. Uh, so how we approach this topic is, first of all, to investigate um, different types of traumatic events in the, within this population, and we look at um, of also different um, different subpopulations groups. So for example, what is the difference in a trauma profile of, of men and women in the population? Mm -hmm. or what is the difference between veterans and non-veterans? And we also look into um, traumatic re-experiencing. So the questionnaires we use, uh, it's called leg five and um, it's structured by asking whether you had previous experience and you have a list of traumatic experiences and then after after their experience with ayahuasca we ask them whether they re-experience uh, certain types of traumatic events they previously reported and we found that 59% uh, of veterans and 42 non-veterans were actually experiencing previous adverse life events which is quite a significant number and um, uh, what was also interesting is that uh, females that females generally experience um, uh, adverse life events in a higher proportion than males, um, because 57% of females in our population group um, uh, re-experience uh, previous adverse events in comparison to 32% of males. And just to add the populationals kind of um, proportional regarding the males and females in the situation, uh, in, the, in the population, to start with. And um, it's important to say that women exhibited a greater likelihood of re-experiencing adverse life events than men. Um, and it was um, substantially driven by between substantially driven by the differences between females and males uh, re-experiencing sexual assault mm -hmm. uh, with four in 10 women with previous history of sexual assault. Um, obviously, it's a bit of controversial topic, but much more female than male seem to kind of experience the sexual assault. Um, and it's something that has been re-experienced a lot. And also um, regarding the veterans, they, it seems that they exhibited a greater likelihood of re-experiencing certain adverse life events. For example, um, uh, experience of disaster, loss of significant odor, um, and also episodes of harming others. So it's kind of, it does make sense because they also have a different trauma profile than people that are not veterans. But what was actually also interesting is that um, is that that this traumatic re-experiencing was um, associated with increased um, discomfort and reappraisal during the ceremony. Um, 
which might suggest that um, that perhaps it contributes to some um, therapeutic outcomes, um, but is not without um, challenges during ceremony. And I think that should be acknowledged um, that, you know, going into this experience might be extremely challenging and um, and also um, what we found as a caveat that there was a per small percentage, a really small percentage of participants who uh, reported um, re-experiencing a memory that they did not previously report mm. experiencing at all, which is quite interesting because you might ask yourself a question whether uh, they just forgot, repressed those memories, or perhaps these are not their memories and how how the hell mm -hmm. did they experience them if they haven't experienced them in the first place so i think it's definitely a very interesting paper to look into uh, for anyone that is interested in you know uh ceremonies of ayahuasca in relation to trauma and it's important to acknowledge that there are differences in populations attending those ceremonies and perhaps you know a facilitator might have you know, a certain approach to accommodate that difficult re-experiencing that might emerge during the ceremony. So, yeah, that's the main gist of our first paper. We also have some future papers um, planned using the same um, database, but uh, as I am interested in um, in physiological biomarkers, I would really be interested to investigate the heart rate variability change mm -hmm. And we also happen to have some of this data from uh, wearable devices. And I still don't know whether it's possible to have a good enough signal to kind of stimulate this data and look into it into more detail, but I'll endeavor to try and I'll see if we can get some interesting results. Yeah, I, I think you'll get a lot of interesting results. It's, it's fascinating to me. Is, is there any working hypothesis on the I guess, is there any working hypothesis you know about or scientific studies done that speak to the idea of change coming through confrontation? Because it sounds like in that study, people were revisiting these very challenging traumatic moments. And it sounds like a hypothesis may be something along the lines of the path of confrontation is what leads to the change of reorganizing your thoughts, which leads to health. I'm, I'm not sure. Are you aware of any studies like that or people that speak about, speak about that? Yeah, definitely. I'm not an expert in clinical psychology. Right. Uh, however, um, I do believe there are different studies talking about it and um, also different schools of, you know, therapists say that, um, it's quite important to kind of perhaps re-experience to those memories mm -hmm. and and kind of shift your focus to that um, perhaps traumatic event in order to kind of acknowledge it um, that is there and get better. Um, and I've recently uh, read a quite an interesting book called Spiritual Bypassing, which talks about how people will sometimes use uh, spirituality to kind of bypass this um, this traumatic and often, you know, forgotten or trying to desensitize that 
the emotions they're struggling with and how people can use spirituality to kind of bypass this experience and the author of this book it's definitely an interesting read that I would recommend is kind of you know um emphasizing that it's very important to kind of try to acknowledge those difficult emotions in order to um to get better so I do believe it's definitely a valid point. And it seems that we also looked into um, adverse life experience and it seemed mm-hmm. that, um, you know, this traumatic re-experiencing was associated with um, increased discomfort and reappraisal. So, yeah, I think there is definitely a lot more research to be done. And I would be curious um, whether that will be a, f- a working hypothesis one day. You had mentioned that perhaps in a future study you would like to monitor like the heart rate. It seems to me like that heart rate would increase with those with those traumatic experiences. And if it did, what would that tell us? Like, what would that mean? It's not exactly heart rate okay. that would be. Uh, I would like to work uh, look into. Um, the variable is called heart rate variability. Heart okay. rate variability um, is kind of reflects a measure of. Um, the interbit intervals um, in your heart rate while it's beating. And there is uh, some evidence suggesting that um, people uh, with um, depression might have decreased uh, heart rate variability and that, you know, the more flexible um, your heart is, the, the healthier you are. And often people that do a lot of physical activity and are generally healthy, they seem to have higher heart rate variability. So um, I would like to investigate whether, and I know that other, my colleagues also investigate heart rate variability. It seems to, it seems like a quite a hot topic now. Um, But yeah, I would just be curious to see whether um, we could make a similar kind of hypothesize that people with PTSD perhaps um, have lower heart rate variability similar to depression um, because, you know, it's also on the spectrum of um, psychopathology and probably also suggesting of, of you know, physical pathological levels, um, like, you know, the way your heart works, the health of your heart. So I would be curious to see whether perhaps there is any change we're going to see after the ayahuasca trip or perhaps during the trip. And yeah, similar uh, similar to what we're going to do in the microdosing project, we'll also look into heart rate variability because we expect our population to um, have some levels of subclinical um, mood problems. So um, we hypothesize that those people uh, will have a lower heart rate variability than healthy people. And we're going to look into potential improvements um, while they're on microdose um, and also on the follow-up, which happens after the microdosing period, so four weeks after they complete the microdosing period. So we're not only going to look into whether there is any potential change in heart rate variability, but also whether this change can be um, a long term. And yeah, I think it's quite interesting. It, it's fascinating to think about. How, so you would get the results back from that and then measure it against, what would you measure it against? Like healthy beings and different studies or, or what would you measure mm-hmm. that results against? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So firstly, we could just um, simply focus on pre and post changes. And also, as you know, we're going to have the placebo group in the right. study. So we can also compare um, if people in the placebo condition could also improve in heart rate variability. But it would be also difficult to say whether this change, if there is any change, if it could be attributable to just the drug, because um, there is evidence suggesting that, you know, even improvement in your lifestyle um, in a level of physical exercise can also contribute to that positive change. So um, whether we can hypothesize that this change is definitely attributable to psychedelic or not, it's really hard for me to say, but maybe we could look at heart rate variability as a potential biomarker of you know, mental health and also physiological health change. And if yes, I think it's a definitely a great and interesting biomarker to have because it's completely non-invasive how we measure it. Um, but I'm not sure whether wearable devices will be good enough to, and accurate enough to show this change on a, on a clinical level. But yeah, it's something that we're still investigating, so... Yeah. On the topic of a lot of the times in the literature, in when we talk about psychedelics or in theogens, we talk the, in the literature, you see in the, you, you hear this term set and setting. And I'm mm -hmm. curious in the ayahuasca, in the ayahuasca paper that was published, did they measure the setting like it was in a ceremonial setting we heard. But was it done, like was it done in South America? Was it done like on a reservation somewhere? Like what was the location of that? And did they incorporate the set and setting in that? In that particular paper yeah so that particular data um i should have mentioned it um it's a uh, data from uh ceremonial ayahuasca users in south america and i believe the data is coming from five different retreats in south america um, um i'm not entirely sure what retreats because i didn't actively participate in collecting this data um but yes it's it's been done in ceremonial settings in south america with um with a proper you know shaman or curindero and yeah whether the set and setting is um a moderator of the experience and perhaps mental health outcomes, it's very difficult for me to say. And I think the research is currently being done about set and setting. And also, you know, it's so much different to how we conduct trials in, um, in the UK or in academia, where set and setting is completely different, you know. But if you can picture yourself as a, for example, if I can picture myself as someone that is coming from, you know, Western world with some, with some, you know, significant traumas going to um, the jungle and going through the whole experience. I'm not entirely sure whether um, this experience being so different from the idea of the world I currently have, which is, you know, in the jungle, um, would be extremely helpful in me integrating this experience but again i'm not definitely an expert on that matter and my research is mainly you know clinical so i could tell you a lot more about the settings <laughs> we have in our clinical trials yeah, in yeah. london but it seems that you know those people seem to improve so yeah i'm not entirely sure how the set and setting 
and Amazon moderates the outcomes, the mental health outcomes people have, but it's definitely interesting to look into. Yeah, it would be a, it would be a cool study. You know, when you look at a lot of talk therapy, or when I read some biographies of people from some of the things that I have read, getting leverage on yourself and is like a big step in changing. And I would imagine that gearing up for a trip to a different country to experience a whole new culture is a giant step in getting leverage on yourself. It's really saying to yourself, I want change. I'm taking this next step, which is a big part of any sort of healthy dynamic of whether it's relationships or family or friends. And it's, it's really a fascinating concept to, to think about. And I'm, I'm all for people finding ways to take that next step or harness the courage it takes to become their authentic self. It's, it's really wonderful to, to think about that aspect of it. And you know, another, yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, absolutely. I agree with you. And I think like even taking this big step and going for a trip to, you know, Amazon, it's a, it's kind of an intervention itself. So (laughs) it might be a a significant confounder, but, um, as long as you know we don't cause harm and yeah. there are some benefits i think i don't necessarily think it's a it's a bad thing if i were to wave a magic wand and be able to fund any project you wanted like what are what are some projects like if you had the ability to have if if i was a giant backer and i had tons of money and i could fund whatever project you wanted to would there be a set of projects or would there be one in particular what would it be wow First of all, if you do have those um, magical skills, please do. <laughs> please. <laughs> it would be absolutely amazing if you could. <laughs> well, it's an interesting question. It's, it's, it's hard for me to um, kind of un- choose just like focus on one project. Right. There are so many interesting research questions, um, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think... If I were to choose, I would probably focus on kind of, you know, um, finding the right biomarkers of um, mental health and physical health, because I don't think we currently have enough reliable biomarkers um, to kind of investigate the improvements in plasticity and, you know, um, in the physiological and psychological well-being. So I think it's quite important to, um, to mention there is also a huge translational gap between, you know, animal models and uh, human clinical research. As you know, the mechanism of action papers are mainly focused on animal models or cellular models. However, the methods we currently have are not entirely translational to humans. And also, sadly, it's really hard for us to investigate what's going on in a human brain on a very kind of molecular level because the only way we can do it is um, is using brain imaging which is um, which is t- typically quite expensive if you want to use pet imaging that gives you an indication on you know the receptor level the cost associated with um, investigating any work in hypothesis are just humongous and I think that's a big limitation be- because as you know everyone is different so to kind of really have a good understanding and prove your hypothesis you need a large sample but you cannot 
enroll to many subjects on a study that is extremely expensive because you have those financial constraints. So it's definitely a very tricky field to kind of, you know, operate to try to be as translatable as you can, but also focus on the high cost of the methods. Mm. And yeah, I think it's definitely good to investigate. Mm. When you say biomarkers, you know, I, I'm familiar with the loss in translation from, from like rats to humans. Like they have like the head twitch and they cut off their heads and they look at all that kind of stuff. Like obviously you can't do that with a human. But what, when you say biomarkers, I, I don't know what that means exactly. Is that like different levels of serotonin or is that different? Like what, what does it mean biomarkers? Like what would you, what specifically would you be looking for? Yeah, I mean, it really depends. So biomarker as a variable that you can you can use as a working hypothesis to test a certain, mm -hmm. for example, trait or to test a certain kind of improvement in physical or mental health. For example, we could say that uh, BDNF is mm -hmm. kind of the biomarker we use to test a neuroplasticity. However, there are also limitations surrounding this biomarker. Um, so I think the field is still constantly developing and I think we need to test more of those biomarkers, um, not only of neuroplasticity, but just as an example, uh, BDNF is a biomarker that we can test both in animals and in humans. However, while the way we test it in humans is typically from um, your peripheral system, so um, like by taking the blood samples because it's not extremely expensive to do. It's kind of doable to kind of take a blood sample from participants and test the levels of BDNF in periphery. However, neuroplasticity is a process that occurs centrally in your brain. So um, is, if it's a good enough biomarker to test from periphery for a process that happens in central nervous system, it's a bit of an overstatement in my opinion. And um, also different interactions may also affect the circulating levels of BDNF mm -hmm. um, in your in your plasma. So it's extremely tricky to find the right ways to measure our working hypothesis still. So I think there needs to be a lot more research done in humans. Um, and yeah, sadly, to do it, it's quite expensive. So for example, focusing on um, heart rate variability as a biomarker of, you know, um, perhaps improvement in depression, which we still don't know if it's an actually good biomarker. Um, it would be great because it's completely non-invasive. Um, it's not expensive to test it. Um, you can either test it using the O-ring as we do or any, any sort of wearable um, seems to measure heart rate variability with enough accuracy to kind of you know see a difference within you as you know perhaps non-clinical subject so it would be good to find more of those kind of cheap and reliable you know biomarkers that could help us assess the improvements on both mental and physical health it's fascinating to think about you know, in, a, in a previous published paper I think you spoke about the geometric shapes of plaque in of in in uh, a while back, and I, I only scanned through that paper a little bit. But 
what what is that what does that geometric shape of that plaque tell us like wh why is that important <laughs> wow so <laughs> it's something that i did so much earlier in my career so <laughs> basically maybe to give a bit of context because sure, it's a bit sure. of context yeah, yeah. to talk about <laughs> plaques that happen in that cardiovascular system <laughs> after talking so much about psychedelics so um uh, before uh working in a psychedelic field during my undergraduate um undergraduate studies i uh, came across that research group that does a lot of um bioengineering and working with um you know um cardiovascular system and um my supervisor was kind of um investigating um he, he wanted to focus on um investigating um potential um risk of people having an acute cardiovascular events um in a non-invasive way so um what we did is using a 3d modeling software um applied on some um cardiac uh, computed tomography of the heart to first of all extract um, the vasculature of the heart. So it's called coronary arteries, like all of our hearts have some um, arteries and little veins around them. And what happens in people that have a coronary artery disease is that some plaques are forming in those arteries. So uh, for some people, it might be stenotic plaques. That means they are mainly form of uh, fatty tissue. For other people, it might be um, more of a um, calcified plaques. So um, typically to investigate um, in the clinical population, um, if someone has has a potentially coronary artery disease, uh, the methods that are being were, are being used are kindly kind of invasive and involve putting a catheter inside of your artery, um, which again has a higher cost because you need a qualified clinician. Again, it's invasive. It's not a very nice procedure. So we thought maybe we can approach it in a different way and use this 3D modeling software to kind of extract the, 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 the arteries. Um, and so the first step was to um, extract the models of the coronary artery trees of, I think it was 27, 27 images um, I had at the time. Uh, and then the next step was to extract um, those plaques from those arteries. So it's a bit of a challenge um, because um, how we see it on the, on the computed tomography might not be extremely you know, accurate as you would see it with the contrast inside of your vein. So um, I try to, to develop a method on how to kind of visualize those plaques in a non-invasive way in people. Um, so then the next step would involve to kind of extract the plaque itself and measure the geometric properties of this plaque. And um, my supervisor, who's... Um, who's also a brilliant scientist, has a lot of um, computational background. So uh, he applied his knowledge to kind of develop an algorithm that would help us perhaps predict a chance in the future of someone having um, an acute cardiac event based on the geometric properties of the plaque. Um, and he does similar research um, in people 
um, that might have a risk of stroke. Um, so also by measuring the, the angles and the geometric properties of the vasculature in the brain, you might be able to predict a risk of you know a stroke in the future. So again, it I think it leans nicely into the conversation about you know trying to find non-invasive biomarkers to kind of mm -hmm. perhaps diagnose people and help people because it's such a in med need and now we have such a sophisticated you know um, computerized technologies that might help us to um, diagnose those people much earlier because if you have a method that is definitely much cheaper and non-invasive there is a greater chance of getting someone tested a bit earlier than after it actually happens when typically it might be too late to you know improve and general health outcomes than if it would be when you if you were tested much earlier so yeah, it's so fascinating to me. And might it be possible to use that algorithm or that research in in some of the things you're doing now? It sounds like he has found a way to take this 2D model on screen and verify it by by all the research. You know what I mean? Like in some ways, he's okay. Here's what it looks like on the screen, and here's the tools we're going to measure it. You know, it. it I don't know. I, it just seems to me like he's figured out a way to translate this two-dimensional object into reality. I mean, that probably has a lot of repercussions in other research and stuff like that. It's fascinating to think about. I'm so stoked to get to hear people talk about it. Is it? Yeah. Uh, it seems like it's going to be. In those findings, did they match up? Did the computer model that they, you saw on the 2D screen when you measured it afterwards were they were they similar? Was the geometric shape the same? So there are definitely some limitations with this research. Uh, mm. First of all, the models I've done were only based on the um, CCTA images, and we didn't like we didn't come back to those patients and actually measure the properties of of those you know plaques using different methods. Um, it's something we postulated as a potential you know um, potential tool that might be used in the future if we do much more research um, but it was not exactly verified in the in that population sample we tested it was more of a you know retrospective assessment and trying to um, come up with a method that might be potentially used and it's also important to mention that most of this research it's happening in um, Asia I believe um, I think it's it's China, so I'm not entirely sure whether the clinicians um, did any follow-up with those patients and what would be the long-term outcomes of those patients that we measured. However, I do think that there is um, a potential trend of um, moving the paradigm to a more personalized and perhaps cheaper um, diagnostic medicine. Um, that I think would definitely be very interesting to investigate more. And we just have to be, you know, creative and we have to be kind of, you know, adventurous and, um, and open-minded. So I, I quite like taking that direction of making something accessible to as many people as you possibly can if that can potentially help those people and it's accurate enough. But again, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of funding. So sometimes 
we start doing those things and this research, but never end up, you know, mm. having any conclusive findings because the sample is not big enough to show statistical difference or it's too hard to come back or, you know, the, the grant is ended. Yeah, it's just really tricky to navigate academia. <laughs> that, that's a lot. I don't, I didn't know that. And I'm willing to bet most people don't ever see that side. Like there's all this promise of a study that gets done, but then it never gets revisited. Like that's kind of heartbreaking in some ways. It must be difficult to look at that from that perspective. And yeah, absolutely. Man, I think creative, adventurous, and open-minded are all three great words that describe you and the work you're doing. Like I'm super thankful for all your time today. And I, I really enjoyed it. I'm really excited that people are out there looking for answers to to problems and questions and are excited to do it and are at the forefront of it. But before I let you go, maybe you can talk about what where where people can find you, what you have coming up and and anything else about the the microdosing study that we didn't touch on. Okay. Well, um well, I'm not a huge social media person, so I do I do use LinkedIn quite a lot. I think it's a really good platform because it's professional enough and there are still some, you know, boundaries. So I quite like to use LinkedIn and I'm open to anyone who's interested to have a conversation about microdosing or mm -hmm. psychedelic research to reach out. So please do if you are interested or would like to ask me any questions. Um, for people that might potentially be interested participating in our microdosing study, uh, we do have a sign-up link on the Imperial um, College website. So if you simply type in um, microdosing 2.0 Imperial College London, you will come up with the website on Google, and then you can read all the information you need. And uh, I would strongly recommend reading the participant information sheet and the inclusion criteria before um, you decide, you know, starting the trial. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, what else I have coming up? So um, mainly the coordination of the trial, which I hope will be fruitful. And also hopefully some workshops soon um i might do some presentations about microdosing again and um some of the sexuality and female female targeted research so mm, yeah. i will definitely let you know if there is something coming up in the near future yeah we didn't really touch on that is that something you want to talk about the female targeted research I think we might be running out the time right now, but Me too. Um, Me too. <laughs> I would definitely love to talk about it more in the future. Absolutely. Well, everyone listening, go check out the show notes, check out the work she's doing. It's really incredible. And I had a fantastic time talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Ladies and gentlemen, hang on, Alexander. I'm going to talk to you briefly afterwards, but I'm going to hang up with the people. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for spending a little bit of your Sunday with us. I hope the rest of your Sunday is beautiful and that's all we got for today. Aloha. Thank you. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances... I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. 
I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.